to this edition of Nupi's podcast, The World Stage. My name is Cedric de Koenig. I'm a research professor at the Nupi Center for UN and Global Governance. Our topic today is we're going to talk about the role that international institutions like the United Nations can play in helping to prevent conflict and make peace. What do we know about what works and what doesn't? And we are interested in this topic because the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has set a process in motion to rethink the UN's role in peace and security. And currently there's a process underway in the United Nations to draft something called the New Agenda for Peace. An old Agenda for Peace was a major policy document that was produced under the then UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali in 1992. And it defined the way that the UN understood and approached preventive diplomacy, peacemaking, peacekeeping, and peacebuilding for the following decades. The new agenda for peace is perhaps less ambitious, but it does still provide us with an opportunity to reflect on the collective approach and capability of the international peace and security architecture and the role of the United Nations and other actors in it, especially regional organizations like the European Union and the African Union. To help us talk through these questions, our guest today is Ian Martin. Ian has been a friend of Nubi for many years. I think we got, best got to know Ian during the period that he was part of the United Nations Independent High-Level Panel on Peace Operations around 2014-2015, when Nupi provided some support to the work of the panel. So welcome, Ian, and we look forward to uh, the discussion around the high-level panel and related issues and their relevance for the new Agenda for Peace with you today. Glad to be here. So let me start by introducing Ian to those of you that may not know him. Ian started his career as a researcher and he later became the Secretary General of Amnesty International. And he also towards uh, uh, a later point in his career was the head of executive director, I guess, of the Security Council report. But in his UN's career, in his UN career, he was uh, the head of the UN's human rights team or work in Rwanda immediately after the genocide. He led the process to organize a popular consultation in Timor-Leste in 1999. We we must have just missed each other in Timor-Leste, Ian, because I was deployed into Timor-Leste in December 1999 in my first UN job as a UN volunteer as part of the UN Transitional Administration in East Timor. So uh, uh, me and my colleagues had to fix the mess (laughs) that you contributed to. (laughs) (laughs) A very successful outcome. (laughs) Uh, And after his work in Timor-Leste, he was the Deputy Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General of the UN Peacekeeping Operation in Ethiopia and Eritrea, UNMI, and the SRSG in Nepal. And in Libya, he was also the Special Representative of the Secretary General and head of the United Nations Support Mission in Libya. But Ian, it was only after reading your book, All Necessary Measures, the United Nations and International Intervention in Libya, that was about your experiences in Libya and the many larger issues and lessons that intervention raised, that I realized how much your experience with the panel, uh, or uh, how much rather I would say your experience with the planning for Libya influenced some of the findings and recommendations of the high-level panel. So that's what you really want to talk about today, about lessons from the high-level panel for the moment we're in, in the context of the, the new agenda for peace. One of the most important recommendations of the high-level panel was about the primacy of politics. 
namely that peace operations should be guided by a political strategy. However, most of the UN's large multidimensional peace operations today, like the missions in the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Mali, that are all called stabilization missions, precisely because they lack what the Brahimi report referred to as a peace to keep. Uh, in other words, a ceasefire agreement or a peace process that the UN can help to implement, or even a political project that can lead to a peace process. And I think the inability of these missions to help bring an end to these conflicts um, has contributed to a loss of trust in the ability of these kind of missions to achieve what is expected of them. And as a result, no new missions of this type has been deployed since 2014, for almost 10 years now. I think this is a key issue that the new agenda for peace is grappling with as well. And so what I want to ask you is, do you think this turn to protection and stabilization was a mistake and that we should return to the days when a ceasefire agreement or peace agreement that requests the UN to play a role in implementing those agreements should be a prerequisite for the deployment of a UN peacekeeping operation? I don't think that's entirely a black and white question. I, I don't think one can ask for the perfect peace agreement before there's a role for the United Nations to have a peace operation on the ground. But I do indeed think that the UN has gone into situations which, in, in retrospect, did not have the conditions for the, the success of the mission. The, Arctic, the example which is strongest in my own mind is, is Mali with the peacekeeping mission MINUSMA, um, because during the high-level panel, I was one of a group of members that visited MINUSMA. Um, this was in 2015, so it was still a relatively new mission, but already it was clear that the peacekeepers, particularly in the north of Mali, uh, had a mandate and operating conditions that really firstly put them at very high risk, uh, suffering multiple casualties with very limited effectiveness on the, on the ground. Um, but to go back to uh, Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon's reasons for establishing the high-level panel on peace operations, I think it was because he had a sense that uh, there were both very long-standing missions where there was no sign of political solutions despite relatively secure situations on the ground. You know, we can talk about Cyprus and go back as, uh, as long as one wants to. And on the other hand, there were these newer missions in very great difficulty. As, as you say, the Bohemia Report had already talked about situations of no peace to keep. It's important to note that he tasked the panel with looking not only at peacekeeping missions, but also at what the UN calls special political missions. That's to say the, the missions that uh, don't have armed peacekeepers with a mandate to, to use force. Um, uh, and so we looked at the whole spectrum and indeed emphasised that peace operations should be regarded as a spectrum, uh, not just two different categories of, of missions. And although we were focusing on peace operations, we also emphasised the importance of prevention ahead of the possible deployment of peace operations uh, and at peace building, although there was a parallel panel that was looking at peace building issues. So we were, I think, already very much on the wavelength of the importance of looking at a whole peace spectrum, which is one of the ideas that I think is uh, being picked up in the, in the new agenda for, for peace. Uh, but I do indeed think that uh, uh, in emphasising the primacy of politics, which became 
a mantra that has been, uh, I think, very much picked up from Hippo. Um, uh, we saw it as crucial that peace operations, whether political missions or peacekeeping operations, were part of a political strategy and that the military element of peace operations should not be deployed before there was a political context that uh, uh, offered some hope of there being effective on the ground and an eventual exit strategy. Well, thank you very much. And I think that leads me nicely to to questioning then, you know, what are the other options the UN Security Council and in, in the international community should consider when faced with dealing with the kind of scenarios that we find in, in the Sahel and northern Mozambique where the UN is, is, and other organizations like the African Union or sub-regional organizations are asked to deal with conflict situations that involve violent extremists or, or um, groups that are not necessarily interested in a political solution. And uh, one of the ideas that the Secretary General has repeated on several times recently is that the UN should support regional organizations like the African Union uh, to do peace enforcement operations in these contexts. And I know you recently undertook a strategic review of the UN mission in Somalia um, where the UN does provide logistical support to the African Union mission in Somalia. So I guess one question for me would be, do you think the UN is capable to support these kind of peace support uh, enforcement operations or other peace enforcement operations? Well, the first thing to say is that, that I think there are very clear red lines and we tried to draw them in the HIPPO report uh, about contexts in which, which are not appropriate for UN peacekeeping. And we said very clearly that UN peacekeeping was not itself suitable for counterterrorism operations. Uh, and therefore, uh, in those contexts, it would be appropriate for there to be what are referred to as coalitions of the willing or um, the operation of regional organizations. And we were very strong on, uh, on partnerships, um, uh, particularly with the African Union. Um, we said, as the Secretary General has said too, that, and says in the context of the uh, new agenda for peace, that it ought to be possible for uh, operations mandated by the UN Security Council, um, carried out by regional organizations, to be funded through United Nations assessed contributions. Now then there's a further step as to whether the, the UN can not just financially but logistically support uh, uh, other operations on the ground and that's where Somalia is indeed a significant precedent um, where there's a UN operation UNSOS that provides logistical support both to the African Union operation uh, formerly AMISOM now ATMIS uh, and also to a defined number of troops of the, the Somali National Army um, but I think one also has to question how far um, it's appropriate for UN, the kind of logistical operation that the UN has run for peacekeeping missions to be deployed for counterterrorism operations that place very different kind of demands uh, for support. Um, and also how far the UN as a body should be directly supporting national armies uh, support, uh, carrying out counterterrorism operations. I think the division of responsibility between the UN supporting through a political mission, the political process in, in Somalia, and the African Union 
carrying out the uh, the military functions is a is a reasonable division of responsibility. Um, but we have to see where that goes uh, once the uh, African Union operation is withdrawn. And I think when we talk about conflict resolution in these kind of contexts, we are, we are still often stuck about talking about some form of peace operation, whether it's a political operation or a peacekeeping operation or a stabilization operation. Uh, but I think the high-level panel was also interested in how the UN can mobilize the wider UN system development action, human rights, justice, women, governance and finance and um, to not just put out the fires but to deal with the, the deeper grievances uh, behind uh, and that are fueling the conflict. Um, what was the high-level panel's recommendations in this regard and, and do you think they are still valid today for the new agenda for peace? Well, although we emphasize the importance of, of, of prevention, it wasn't really our terms of reference to go very far as to uh, how that can be implemented in practice, um, but uh, uh, but that has been one of the priorities of the of the Secretary General. It's been one of the objectives uh, of some of the reform processes he's uh, he's introduced. I, I th would really have to question how far the kind of institutional barriers within the United Nations that enables it to work together effectively on a prevention agenda have actually been been broken down, uh, even with those, those reforms. Um, it particularly means that United Nations country teams under a resident coordinator uh, in a context where there isn't a peace operation on the ground needs to be able to coordinate the system across that broad agenda. Um, and although some changes have been made um, by uh, the Secretary General taking direct responsibility through his deputy for resident coordinators rather than their being responsible to the United Nations Development Programme alone, uh, we're still in very early days in seeing how far that allows for more effective political or preventive action across the system. And maybe one last issue, Ian, that I wanted to raise with you is I know that the high-level panel had a very specific focus on, on more people-centered peace operations. And I think this is also something that I picked up in through the consultations around the new agenda for peace. Um, you also stressed the importance uh, of uh, national ownership in the Libya context from your experience there. And yet UN peace operations still seem to be more accountable, more focused on, on meeting the expectations of the United Nations and the international community. For instance, in terms of you know what peace should look like, rather than providing space for and supporting local and national agency to shape their own peace processes. What do you think the UN can and do, and or can and should do differently? Uh, and it will be interesting to get your advice on this for the new agenda for peace. Perhaps specifically, what should the UN do when the peace that emerged from such local processes does not fit with the international expectations? That's a very difficult question to, to answer other than analysing the particular context in which that occurs. But the real challenge for the UN is, is when you say that processes should be nationally owned, locally led, who does that really mean uh, and who can you engage with effectively in practice? Of course, you have to engage with uh, the government, the principal state uh, actors. Um, but what about civil society? And that 
being people-centred in practice comes down, I think, very much to mindset, first of all. It depends critically on, on mission leadership and uh, uh, the different elements of a, of a mission being wanting to engage broadly with local communities. Depends on resources, because a sort of small political team around a special envoy can't do that. You have to have some local outreach. And it also depends on the security situation, because when I think of Libya and the time that I was there, fortunately, there was a security context in which I and my colleagues could go pretty much anywhere within the country, uh, uh, hold very open discussions with local communities and civil society. And then, of course, once the civil war began in 2014, um, that situation ended and has only returned to a limited extent. So there is unfortunately a conflict between being people-centered in practice uh, and the increasing security concerns that, that UN operations have faced on the ground. But the objective really ought to be certainly reiterated, I hope, in the new agenda for, for peace. Ian, thank you so much. It was so interesting to talk to you today. And, and I think uh, as you've touched on a number of issues and gave a number of examples, there's still a lot of the findings and recommendations of the high-level panel on peace operations that are still relevant for the new agenda for peace. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. I think that's true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.